I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans, if you have a copy of uh, the New Testament with you. Last week, we began a study of the book of Romans. We took an overview of the book. And this morning, we're going to look at the introduction to the book, which includes the first 16 verses of chapter 1. The book of Romans is perhaps the greatest book in the New Testament in terms of its revelation concerning what God has for us is concerned. Uh, Martin Luther had this to say about the Epistle to the Romans in his preface to the Epistle to the Romans, which is a book that he wrote on it. Romans is worthy not only of every, that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. It can never be read or pondered too much, and the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. That's high commendation for the book of Romans. Romans is a little different from Paul's other letters because most of Paul's letters are communications in which he addresses various situations in the churches that he had, that he wrote to and uh, had a lot of personal statements in them to people that he knew. But Romans is more of a theological treatise. It is an explanation of salvation and the righteousness that God has that he has provided for us. But Romans is also a letter. And the first 17 verses of the first chapter are um, very epistolary. They are like a letter. Likewise, the end of the book is much like a letter, beginning in chapter 15 and verse 14 to the end of chapter 16. This is quite typical of Paul's other letters. But in the middle, we have this rather formal presentation of the doctrine of salvation and other related doctrines, which we'll get into in future weeks. This morning, we're just going to look at the first 17 verses, which constitute an introduction to the book. Now, these 17 verses are divisible into three parts. Verses 1 through 7 are Paul's salutation to the Romans. He greets them. In these verses, then in verses 8 through 15, he explains the purpose for which he has written the book of Romans. And in verses 16 and 7, he clarifies the theme of the book. So we have salutation, 1 to 7, purpose, 8 through 15, and theme, 16 and 17. So we begin with verse 1. Paul, a bondslave of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. It was common when Paul lived in the first century A.D., when people wrote letters, that they identified themselves right up front, rather than at the end of their letters, as we commonly do now. In all of his letters, Paul used his Roman name, which was Paul, rather than his Jewish name, which was Saul. And he probably did this because 
God had commissioned him to be a missionary to the Gentiles. And so he used his Gentile name, Paul, rather than his Jewish name in addressing this church and all the other churches that he wrote to. This one was especially composed of Gentile people. He calls himself a bondservant of Christ Jesus or a slave of Christ Jesus. Now, many of the New Testament writers describe them in the same way. They call themselves bond servants of Christ. And this servitude, of course, was not forced upon them, but it was a voluntary uh, service that uh, they entered into willingly. Uh, he willingly committed himself to Jesus Christ as his servant, as his bondservant or slave. That's how Paul saw himself. Uh, what God told him to do, he, with the, the Lord's help, did to the best of his ability. He saw himself as a servant of Christ, great model for us to view ourselves the same way. Called as an apostle, Paul's calling in life was to be an apostle. An apostle was a person who was sent with a message. And there, of course, were 12 apostles, the same as the 12 disciples. After Judas died, of course, he was replaced by Matthias. Um, and Paul was the 13th apostle. Uh, he refers to that fact elsewhere. And uh, he was specially appointed, set out, sent out with a message. That's what apostle means. And especially the apostles in the first century were those who planted churches. We might call them missionaries today, or church planters, people who went into regions where there was not a Christian church, preached the gospel, established a church, got it started, appointed leadership in the church, and then moved on to establish other churches. Uh, Paul is a great example of this because that's precisely what he did. And even after he left churches, he would often write to them and encourage them or perhaps correct situations that were going on in the church because he was a kind of a father figure for uh, the churches that he planted. That was the ministry of an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. Uh, He's a servant of Christ, he's called as an apostle, and he is set apart by God for a particular message. Uh, he's been given the gospel, the good news of God, to share with people. And this is kind of Paul's mission statement for his life. That's why he was here in the world. He was set apart to concentrate on the gospel of God, making the good news that God has revealed available for other people. That was his particular niche in life. The gospel which God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. This good news or gospel is going to be a major feature of the book of Romans. What Paul is going to tell us in the book of Romans is what the gospel is. It's an exposition or explanation of uh, what the good news from God consists of. And he says here that it was 
predicted to come in the Old Testament. There are many places in the Old Testament where people were pointed ahead to a time when God would bring good news. Uh, I'm looking at Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1, where we read, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, Isaiah says, Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captive and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. This is good news. Good news that Isaiah was called to preach and which he spoke prophetically would be the message of Jesus Christ as well and Paul following him. So this is one of the places in the Old Testament that Paul is alluding to when he says that God promised beforehand through his prophets the gospel in the Holy Scriptures, the, the Hebrew Bible, concerning his Son. The focus of the gospel is God's Son, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. Uh, the Son of God was the Son of David. And in his earthly life, Jesus was descended from King David, who was declared with power to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. According to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The Son of God is Jesus Christ, who is our Lord. He's God's Son, but he is our Lord. And here I think we should understand Lord in the sense of both God and Master. He was declared with power to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. That which proved that Jesus was the Son of God was his resurrection. Now this verse uh, has been understood in two ways, either of which is an acceptable translation. Uh, the one that I read is, is a good translation, who was declared with power to be the Son of God by the resurrection of the dead. In other words, uh, the resurrection was a powerful declaration that Jesus was the Son of God, but we could also translate this for, verse, he who was declared to be the powerful Son of God by the resurrection of the dead. Both are true really. Uh, it was the resurrection who sh that showed Jesus to be the powerful Son of God, and that event was a powerful event in itself. De uh, Jesus, of course, through, through his earthly ministry, was a subject of a lot of controversy and debate, because people would say, well, he's the coming Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament. Others would say, no, he's not the Messiah. And uh, Paul here makes it clear that he was the seed of David promised in the Old Testament and that his resurrection from the dead proved that he was indeed the Son of God. This was done according to the spirit of holiness. Uh, probably Paul did not mean the Holy Spirit here, or he would have said the Holy Spirit. It's an unusual phrase. And I, I take it that he meant the spirit with a small s of holiness. Um, he's contrasting the sphere in which Jesus lived, verse 4, with the sphere in which he lived in verse 3. 
In one respect, Jesus lived his earthly life in the flesh as a human being, a man among men. In another sense, he lived his life in a, with spiritual contact. Uh, he lived in the spiritual realm as well as the physical realm. And that spiritual realm was a holy realm, the realm of God himself. So we can think of Jesus, and I think Paul is presenting Jesus here, as living really in two spheres at the same time. He lived as a man, but he was also the son of man, the son of God, and so he lived in the spiritual realm as well. And he is Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. Paul says that he and perhaps the other fellow apostles Maybe he's uh, using the we that way. He could be using it editorially. Whom we have received, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. Grace is God's unmerited favor, his divine enablement. And the apostleship is the office that Paul had to bring about the obedience produced by faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. Paul says he had been given special help, and a special position in life so that all the Gentiles would come to obey the Lord as a result of their faith in him. Among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Paul isn't the only one who's called, verse 1. The Romans were called as well. They are the called of Jesus Christ to all who are, are beloved of God in Rome, called saints. He was called an apostle. They were called saints. Now, of course, we normally think today of people uh, who are canonized by the Roman Catholic Church as saints. Uh, Pope John was in Mexico recently, and he canonized the first North American Indian as a saint, But that's not how the New Testament uses the term saints. Saints are people who are set apart for a special purpose, and they are living. The Romans were called saints. That was their calling in life, to be set set apart, sanctified is a related word, for a special purpose. So this is their calling. Paul has said that he was set apart for the gospel of God, verse 1. They have been set apart as saints, as those who have a special purpose in life. And, of course, all of us who have come to faith in Jesus Christ uh, are this type of saint. We are set aside for special blessings by him, for a special purpose in life, just as Paul was set aside for his vocation of being an apostle. That's very important for us to appreciate that and to think of ourselves that way. Uh, Granted, we are sinners. We sin day by day. Uh, We will as long as we are in this life because we are human beings with sinful natures. We fail to do the things that we should. We overstep the bounds in our relationships with people and in our relationship with God. 
But God has made us saints. He has called us to a special purpose in life, a holy calling, set apart for his purposes. And that is one of the great blessings that you and I enjoy as children of God. Uh, My dad once wrote a little booklet called Called Saints, and it was a devotional study on 1 Corinthians, where Paul uses the same phrase of the Corinthians, who were not very saintly in their behavior, but who were in their position in relation to God, set aside for a special holy purpose. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In letters written at this time, these were common terms to use in greeting recipients. Uh, grace was a tomb that uh, a word that the Greek writers used. Uh, as mentioned before, it means God's unmerited favor and his divine enablement. <clears throat> so Paul is wishing that on his Roman readers. Peace, of course, was a Jewish greeting, shalom. And peace means the fullness of God's blessing. When a Jewish person says shalom, even today, to someone else, they are not just saying hello. They are wishing the fullness of God's blessing on uh, the person that they're speaking that to, if they're using it in the, in the uh, full biblical sense. And so this is what Paul wishes on his readers, God's unmerited favor, his divine enablement, and the fullness of his blessing from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's his salutation, uh, a beautiful uh, way to begin a letter. Speaking about saints, I'm reminded of the story of a man who passed away in his town, and he was uh, anything but a saint in his conduct. He was a rascal. He was a a drunkard, a liar, a thief, and everybody in town knew it. But when he died, uh, they were planning his funeral, and his brother approached the pastor of the church where where the funeral would be conducted. And the brother said, "Uh, Pastor, I just have one request for the funeral service. And he said, that's that you refer to my brother as a saint. That would mean so much to me if you would do that. And the pastor said, I don't know how I can do that. He was anything but a saint. Everybody in this town knows what a terrible person your brother was. And the man said, well, I know. But if you just call him a saint, I'll donate $10,000 to this church. Pastor said, well, I'll think about it. (laughs) And so time came for the funeral, and the pastor was standing next to the coffin. The corpse was in the coffin, and he turned to it and he said, now everybody here knows that uh, John was a reprobate, that he was a drunkard and a liar and a thief. But compared to his brother, he was a saint. (laughs) Well, that's what we are. Paul goes on to explain the purpose 
for his writing this letter in verses 8 through 15. It says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. Uh, he was following Jesus' instructions concerning prayer. Here, remember in the upper room, Jesus taught his disciples that when we pray to God, we're to come through Jesus Christ on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done for us. He thanks God for these Roman Christians, Roman saints. Why? Because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. They were famous for their faith. Everybody was hearing about the strong trust in God that characterized these Roman Christians. The whole world, I take it he means the whole Roman world, was hearing about this. For God, whom I serve in my spirit, or as the NIV translates it, with my whole heart, in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how I unceasingly I make mention of you always in my prayers. Paul did what he preached. Remember in 1 Thessalonians 5.7, he wrote to the Thessalonians that we should pray without ceasing. And he says, uh, God is my witness how unceasingly I make mention of you always in my prayers. Praying without ceasing, of course, doesn't mean... Uh, praying without stopping. It means praying without forgetting. Uh, that we do not forget to, to pray for people. We constantly are taking them to the Lord. Uh, not that we do that all the time, but that we keep coming back to that. We do not forget them. Making requests. These are prayers of thanksgiving, but they also include requests. And his request was, if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. Paul wanted to visit this congregation. He had not been to Rome. He had not met these Roman Christians as a church in the past. Acts chapter 2 and verse 10 says that there were some people, some Jews from Rome, who were present on the day of Pentecost. And it may have been those who formed the nucleus of the Roman church and founded this church. Paul did not found this one. In fact, uh, one of the church fathers, a man named Ambros Ambrosiaster, who lived in the fourth century, said that uh, no apostle founded the church of Rome. Now, this, of course, flies in the face of Roman Catholic theology, which says that Peter founded the church. But there is no historical evidence for Peter founding the church in Rome. It was evidently humble Christians who perhaps got saved on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, and Paul looked forward to coming to them. Verse 11, For I long to see you in order that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. Now, isn't that great? He wanted to come to them, not to get something from them, but to give something to them. That I may give you some spiritual gift, some charisma is the actual Greek word, which means slightly different than our English word, charisma. It means a gift in the spiritual realm. 
something of spiritual value he wanted to communicate to them. That is, he gets specific, that I may be in, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you. He wanted to encourage them in their faith, and he would be encouraged being with them because he would see their faith in action and undoubtedly would receive encouragement in his faith from them. Each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. It's a wonderful thing when we can go and visit other Christians, as some of you have today, from other towns, other, other states, and uh, get some spiritual encouragement. Uh, we hope certainly that you find that as you're here among us today. And as we go to be with other people, uh, this should be our concern too, that they be spiritually encouraged by our presence, encouraged to walk with the Lord, encouraged to give him priority in our lives, that, that our lives may have that effect and result as we visit with other people. And I do not want you to be unaware, verse 13, brethren, that often I had planned to come to you and have been prevented thus far. He tried to go to Rome already, but God had not allowed him to do that. He'd shut the doors, and uh, so far, Paul had not been able to visit Rome. I have often planned to come to you in order that I might obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. Not only did Paul want to provide encouragement to this church, but by ministering to them, he would gain spiritual fruit that would uh, not only benefit them, but him. Remember in John 15, 16, Jesus said to his disciples that it was his will that they go and bear much fruit and that their fruit should remain. And uh, Paul wants to do that in Rome. He wants to obtain some fruit for his, from his ministry. I don't think he's talking about money here. I think he's talking about blessing and rewards that will last forever. That kind of fruit. Even as he was able to do among the rest of the Gentiles as he visited other churches and ministered in other areas. I am under obligation, he says, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Not only did he want to go to Rome, but he felt obligated to do so, duty-bound, and not only to the Romans, but to Greeks and to barbarians. Now, this division of humanity into two parts divides mankind in Paul's day according to cultural lines. Of course, Paul lived in the Roman world, that is, the Romans governed that part of the world um, politically, but culturally, the Greek culture, which preceded the Roman uh, times, had thoroughly covered that part of the world. So he's talking about culture here, more than politics. And he contrasts the barbarians with the Greeks. The Greeks referred to people who could not speak the Greek language, 
as barbarians. It's really an onomatopoetic word. In Greek, it is babaros. And it sounds like a person who can't speak right, doesn't it? Ba, 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 ba. The Greeks said anybody who can't speak Greek is just going ba, 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 ba. He's a barbarian. And that's where the word came from. And so Paul is looking at humanity along linguistic lines here, cultural lines, and he's saying, I'm responsible, I'm under obligation to both groups. And then he cuts humanity, he cuts the pie of humanity a different way, and he says both to the wise and to the foolish. The Greeks were very proud of their wisdom. Their philosophers, of course, were some of the greatest minds in history. But Paul didn't just feel called to the wise, he felt called to the foolish as well, to all people the highs and lows. So these are ways of saying that I'm under obligation to everybody. I am debtor to everyone to come and to share the gospel. Verse 15, Thus for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul didn't just look at this as an obligation but he eagerly anticipated going to Rome so that he could preach the gospel and clarify and encourage the people that he was writing here. Now here he refers to the gospel, the good news. And uh, much of this whole book of Romans is going to be an exposition or an explanation, an unpacking of what the gospel, the good news really involves. Paul was not able to go to Rome at this time, so he sent them a letter. And in this letter, he explained what he would say if he was present. I'm, not, I'm, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Now, preach, of course, connotes a pastor who's standing behind a pulpit. We think of that image in our minds but the, the word that's translated preach here simply means to herald. It means to announce like a person standing on a corner shouting out, Hear, hear! Pearl Harbor has been bombed. The president has been assassinated. It's just making an announcement. And this is a responsibility that all of us have, too. We, too, are under, under obligation to everyone to preach the gospel, and we should be eager to do so, like Paul. Now, why, why was he under obligation, and why was he eager? Verse 16, this introduces us to the theme of the book. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. He was eager to do it because he wasn't ashamed of it. I've been with some new parents lately. They are not ashamed to tell you about their baby. Because it's the greatest thing that has happened to them. They have this child. They're excited about it. They're eager for everybody to know about it. Some of them even feel duty-bound to share all the details with you. 
whether you want to hear it or not. <laughs> That's how Paul felt about the gospel. It was the greatest news that anybody could hear. He was not ashamed of it. For why? Why isn't he ashamed? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Good news. A message is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now, isn't that interesting? Just a little message has a tremendous power. Now, think back to the book of Genesis. God spoke, and there was light. The light went, lights went on in the universe when God said, let there be light. When he said, let the heavens be, uh, above be separated from the, from the earth below, whammo, it happened. The word of God has tremendous power. And the gospel is good news from God. It is a message, a word from God. So as you and I have opportunity to share what God has done for us in providing his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins, that message itself has the power of God behind it to produce salvation, deliverance, to everyone who believes that message. It's not really that this power is explosive and has the power of dynamite as much as it is that it is intrinsic in the message itself. It has this tremendous ability, the gospel does, to produce salvation in everyone who believes. Now, salvation is another term that Paul is going to explain in this letter, and he's going to spend a lot of time talking about what salvation is. Uh, it's really an umbrella term that includes all kinds of other good things like justification, salvation from our past sins, sanctification, salvation from present sin, glorification, salvation from future, from the presence of sin. All of this is involved in salvation, so he's just introducing the term here, but he's going to explain it in the chapters that follow. It's the power of God. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone. Now, if he just stopped there, of course, it would mean that everybody in the world is saved. But it's to everyone who believes. That's our responsibility. When we hear the good news of salvation, we need to believe it. We need to accept it as truth. We need to rely upon it. And uh, for those who do that, there is salvation. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. You may remember that a few months ago, John Cantor uh, preached for us. John comes through here every year or so and delivers a message. And he preached on this verse when he was with us last time. And he reminded us 
that this verse means that uh, Jewish, the, the Jews heard the gospel first, not that this does not describe the historical priority of Jewish evangelism over Gentile evangelism. To the Jew first and also to the Greek does not mean that, nor does it mean that God evangelized the Jews first in order to get to the Greeks. It was not his method of doing that. But to the Jew first and also to the Greek indicates elective priority, that God chose to send the gospel first to the Greeks, and then he chose to send it to the Gentiles because he has a special purpose for the Jews in the world. And Paul throws this in because he, of course, is a Jew, and his readers are Greeks, Gentiles. Everybody, Jews and Greeks, are the recipients of salvation. I believe this message uh, well over 50 years now, and uh, I was reflecting on the salvation that God has brought into my life as a result of believing the gospel. I believed the gospel when I was a child, probably eight years old or so. I'm not sure exactly when, because I grew up in a good church where I heard it all the time. My parents were believers, and they talked about it a lot. So I, I heard about it and believed in Christ as my Savior when I was, uh, probably before I was 10. And I was thinking, uh, my life has not been characterized by gross sin. God has saved me from that, thankfully. But if I had not trusted in Christ, knowing my heart the way I do, I'm sure I would be one of the worst people in the United States. I probably would be on Skid Row today. I probably would maybe be in prison. I know I would have done things that would have ruined my life, but God saved me from that. Some of you here this morning could give testimonies that you have been involved in some pretty serious stuff and that God has turned your life around 180 degrees, that he has given you salvation. He has saved you from your past. He saved you what could have been in your life. And that's what Paul is talking all about. It takes the power of God to do that. You know, we make more laws and more laws all the time, trying to curb behavior, trying to change people. Wouldn't it be great if we could change people from the inside out? Give them a different attitude toward their fellow man. That's what the gospel does. It changes the hearts of people. And that's why we can be unashamed in bringing it to people, because it's the, the most necessary, the most wonderful, the most life-transforming message that they can hear and benefit from in their entire lifetime. And he goes on, verse 17, for in it... The gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God is really at the center of the gospel, and it is, I believe, 
the subject of the book of Romans. The righteousness of God. What is that all about? Well, we'll find out as we study this book. It is his activity, it's what he does, and it is also a state that you and I enter into of being right with God, of possessing God's own rightness. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. By faith from first till last is one interpretation of that. A righteousness that is by faith from start to finish. Whether we're talking about the first stages of salvation or the last stages of salvation, it all comes to us by faith, not by works. As it is written, and here Paul quotes from the Old Testament, Habakkuk 2.4, to back up what he said, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Righteousness comes to us by faith. In chapter 4 of this book, Paul concentrates on that aspect of what he has said here, that it is not by works that we are made right with God. It's not what we do. It's not what we try to do. It is by believing that he has done for us what we could never do for ourselves in making us right with him. Let's pray together. We thank you, Father, for this great message, this good news that you have provided a Savior, that his name was Jesus, that he is your Son. Thank you that he came to this earth. Thank you that he lived and died not for his own sins, but to pay the penalty for the sins of the world, for our sins. We thank you for reaching down to us and doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. We thank you that your salvation is still at work in those of us who have believed, that daily we see you delivering us from the things that would ruin our lives and break your heart. We thank you for this so great salvation. We pray that if there are any with us this morning who, has, who have never believed the gospel, who have never uh, trusted in this message of good news, will do so even today, even now, and that they will experience this great deliverance. We pray, too, that you will guide us in our continuing study of this book, Thank you for giving it to us. Uh, help us to appreciate what you've done for us. Help us to not be ashamed of the gospel. Help us to realize that we are debtors to all people to share it with them and to be unashamed as we bear it in the world. In Jesus' name, amen.